You're listening to a sermon from Mission City Fellowship of San Antonio, Texas. Mission City Fellowship exists to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ who live all of life for the glory of God and proclaim Christ for the joy of all people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. Let me pray for our time in the Word, and then we will read the Word and dive in. Lord, thank you that you, you have drawn who you have desired to worship you today. And Lord, we trust your sovereign grace, not just when we came to faith, but in the daily workings of our lives. And so even this morning, we believe that, Lord, you have gathered us and you intend to speak to us through your word. You intend to teach us. You intend to train us and lift our eyes to you this morning, that you may be exalted and that the church may grow in grace and knowledge this morning. So may you be exalted. Do your good work. In Jesus' name we pray and the church says, amen. Amen. Follow along with me as I read 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 13 through 15. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with them, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Next Sunday, we have the joy of welcoming eight new members into the church family. Uh, we were actually going to do it today, but some were going to be gone. So, so um, next week during our announcements time, those brothers and sisters will be prayed for, and then they will be presented before the church body as they enter into what we call meaningful membership. The church is a gathering of set-apart people who have been called out of fellowship with the world and sin and Satan and called into fellowship with the triune God of the universe. They, they become the children of God the Father, the disciples of God the Son, who is Christ Jesus, and enlivened, empowered by the Spirit. So they are called out of the world and called into fellowship with God. And in that good, beautiful work, they are called into fellowship with God's people, with one another. So, so in that fellowship, there is, there is a genuine, ongoing, daily commitment in giving ourselves over to God and a genuine, ongoing, daily commitment in giving ourselves to one another. That's, what, that's essentially what church membership is. Meaningful church membership is, is a way that we gather with one another and that we express to one another that we are, in fact, called out ones and we are committed in fellowship to one another. So in short, we would define it like this. Church membership is a commitment by disciples of Jesus to live life together. So you can't be a member of the church if you're not first a disciple of Jesus. And if you're a disciple of Jesus, it is fitting that you be 
joined together and living life unified together. It encourages us away from staying merely church attenders where it can kind of be easy to gather among the church but never really be known by anybody. And so there's really no care that can happen. There's no sense of accountability that can happen. You're kind of disconnected. You're, you're among the church but disconnected, which some people, some actually want that, right? Some just want to stay that, that way. They just want to hide, kind of hide away, maybe get their feel that, oh, I went to church, and, and they're good. But meaningful church membership moves us away from that. It moves us away from being merely church attenders. Being a part of the family of Christ should ultimately lead us to being wholly committed to living life in the local church family, right? Being a part of the family of Christ should ultimately lead us to being wholly a part of the ch- a local church family, to, to absolutely be sold out to leaning into one another's lives in loving community and serious accountability. Loving community and serious accountability. Now, we often, what we, what we often can see is that there can be churches that we're tempted to do the loving community, but we don't do the serious accountability, right? Or it can be flip-flopped. We lean super heavy on the serious accountability, and there's no loving community. But what, what, what the word, what the, the biblical aim for this is, is actually to, to, to be both, The aim is to be both of those things, to be earnestly desirous of one another and to be living and leaning into one another's lives where there is loving community and serious accountability. And the verses we just read, the verses we just read show us that. They show us a commitment to live life together in loving community and very serious accountability. Summed up, This passage of Scripture is talking about church discipline. That's a heavy... Maybe that's why we're missing half of the church church discipline. Um, They're like, that that can't be worshipful. (laughs) No, I know we're not missing our people for that. They would lean into that. Uh, But this passage of Scripture is talking about church discipline. It shows us a, a commitment to live life together even when there is a wayward brother or sister in the family of Christ, and how we are then to respond to it. That's what this passage shows us. So so do we ignore sin so that we can avoid entering into hard conversations? Because we know it could be a hard conversation, so we just kind of avoid it. I'm not going to bring that up. That's just too tough. Do we accept their sin in the name of mercy? Right, we're seeing that in our present day. Like in the name of compassion and mercy, we're not going to address sin at all. And if, and if sin is even brought up, it's considered unloving, right? Is that, how we're, is that how the church of Christ is supposed to respond? Well, this, this passage today, we're going to see that we need church discipline. We, we need church discipline, and why? Be, because we are all sinners, We are sinners being sanctified. And there is no 
perfected person, whether pastoral team or, or just anybody attending, there is no perfected person in this room. And until Christ returns, the temptation of sin is a reality of every Christian's life. The reality of the temptation to sin. And so we, we desperately need the loving community and serious accountability of the church family to rescue one another from the pool of waywardness. We need church discipline. So here's the big idea of today's passage, that church discipline is a good thing, and it is something we are to be committed to and live out with one another. Okay? Church discipline is a good thing, and it is something that we are to be committed to and live out with one another. So, how is it a good thing? <laughs> how is it a good thing? Well, that's where Paul begins in verse 13. He shows us the good of church discipline. The good of church discipline. He says, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. And we know he's using the word brothers that could be used for brothers or sisters. It's for everyone. It's this this vast gathering of everybody in that that sentence. Do not grow weary in doing good. In, In the verses right before that verse, Paul just got done addressing how there are some in the church who are not responding well to calls for them to turn away from areas of living and thinking that don't accord with the Word of God. And so they are sinful things. That's what Pastor Rob preached on last week. There is sin, and you need to turn away from it. Paul is calling them to this. Now remember, this church, the church at Thessalonica, I'm sure you remember this, we've repeated this over and over again, is a young church. They are a young church filled with people who are brand new to the faith, And from what we can tell, the church was only several months old. And so you can imagine, you can imagine the sanctifying work that is currently happening in this church, right? Think back. Think back to when you first came to Saving Faith. Think back and join me in cringing, right? When you first came to Saving Faith, How much have you grown in Christ-like maturity since that day? But think back to only a few months into the faith. Where were you at? There were probably some things that you turned away from immediately. And the odds are, because you are imperfect or we are imperfect, is that there are still things that are being sanctified within you. It should be kind of this upward trajectory of, growing in grace and maturing in Christ, but the, think about just a few months in. I've told you the story that a few months in for me, I, we're playing a game in the church. It was a game night, a church game night, and I'm young. I mean, I'm not only just literally a young man, but I'm young in the faith, and we're playing a game, and the game was getting intense and almost out of me. At one moment came words that should never be spoken among, among church folks. And I just remember our praise band leader was right next to me. And he, whoa, man, whoa, buddy. <laughs> they were super gracious with me. And I knew, oh, I stopped myself. And by the grace of God, I, I'm not afraid of doing that anymore. But, um, but a few months in, 
that was an area of my life that was being sanctified. So you can imagine where this church is. We can just put ourselves right there with them. Now, here's the thing. Often, when we connect the word discipline to the church, we can think of it always being this big, scary thing. But the odds are, you probably experienced this, I experienced it, that there were people more mature than you who were bearing with you when you, were coming, when you came to the faith, right? That praise band leader and all the other 10 people at the table didn't just kick me out right away. They, they began to walk alongside me. I began to meet with like three other men and growing in, in prayer and growing in studying the Word. They began to pour into me, these mature saints. Well, what they were doing was an informal form of discipline. They were coming alongside me and helping me be formed in the way that I should go. Showing me what was wrong, correcting when needed, and is stirring me on on the right path. That is an informal form of church discipline. So we can often think of discipline as this big, scary thing, but it's probably happening more than you think. So we'll unpack this now. Discipline is a very good thing. And when we think about it outside of the church, we always think of it as a good thing. We always think of it. An athlete must be disciplined in eating habits and workout routines to train their body and minds. And they have a coach who comes alongside them to sharpen their discipline. And we would say that's a good thing, wouldn't we? I used to run a lot. I know it doesn't show now, but I used to run. I ran like half marathon. I used to, and you would have to run and run and train and eat well and all this. And, and, and you had to discipline yourself. You had to walk in discipline. And I had a cousin who would do it with me, and he would help me stay disciplined. It's a good thing. A student must grow in discipline in order to grow in expertise of a subject. And what do they have? They have a teacher who comes alongside them to help direct them in their growing discipline. And we would say that is a good thing, wouldn't we? It's okay. You just keep going. A person learning an instrument. In parenting. Just keep going on and on. Discipline is considered good. Under the umbrella, imagine an umbrella, like you're rocking with an umbrella in the rain, an umbrella. Under the umbrella of discipline, there is formation and correction. Formation and correction. The, The formation of a person in training, instruction, and equipping. And then the correction of a person in their practice and living. Formation and correction, formative discipline and corrective discipline. And it's all good. It's all good. And the same is true for discipline in the church. So let's just hide that in our hearts now. No matter what we've seen in the past, no matter what we've seen, maybe we've been burned by it, maybe we're afraid of it, maybe we've seen heavy-handed pastors. I, I don't know what you have seen. But let's just agree now at this moment, it's good. It's a good thing. Formative church discipline is the most practiced form of discipline, which is often private, personal, and informal. 
formative church discipline is the equipping and training of the Christian by means of Bible study together, fellowship groups, friendship with other believers, preaching and teaching and prayer with one another, on and on, countless enjoyable things that challenge and encourage us to know and love God and form us. It's forming and shaping us to live the life Christ has intended us to live in, right? Formative church discipline. And then there's corrective church discipline. And that can be something that's very, that's less serious and informal, and it's, it can be private, like a one-on-one conversation, going up to a, a brother or sister in the church and, and just helping them see that, brother, I, I don't know if you're trusting the Lord. As you, when you say those things, I don't know if that's expressing a trust in God in that, that circumstance. And it's helping them see that. Or, brother, I saw when you corrected your child, my friend, I saw maybe just a hint of anger there. How's your heart? Are, are you remembering the, the, the gentleness of Christ towards you in your waywardness as you then address the, the waywardness of your child? Those, that is corrective. Discipline. There's discipline happening. We're rubbing. There's equipping. There's training. There's correction happening. And most correction happens just like that. It's not a big deal. It doesn't have to be a big thing. And it's good for the church And then there is more serious forms of church, corrective church discipline. It takes more of a formal, even more of a public form of church correction in which someone refuses to turn away from sin. When when brothers and sisters have come alongside them and said, hey, this, this is sin and this is not good for you, and they refuse to respond. In those cases, it becomes even a moment where it can be brought to the whole church and the whole church participates in pursuing that brother or sister for their good. So so church discipline can take many different forms, but often isn't that last one how you have often or we have often thought of church discipline? The very last one, right? The big scary one. That's often where we go to, but it is far, far more. To bear with one another and to call one another away from sinful thinking and speaking and living, to be committed to church discipline requires supernatural love. It requires supernatural love because it can be very difficult and it can be a very tiresome work. But according to the word of God, it is a very good work. And so Paul then says, do not grow weary in doing good. And he's talking, that sentence is often quoted outside of the context of the passage, right? The good he's talking about is in the context of church discipline. He's calling the thing that is good, the church discipline. The living life in one another's lives. Pursuing one another. Leaning into one another, that is the good that they are to not grow weary in doing. (laughs) Throughout this letter, Paul has prayed over and over again that this church would be filled with overflowing Christ-like love for one another. And it sort of leads up to this very moment in the letter. 
It's sort of all is building. Why do they need all this love? Well, they live in a hard world. That's true. But there's hard things happening in the church too. And so the love they need to overflow and fill them, this Christ-like love, they need it desperately for moments like this. All, it kind of culminates to this moment. It is the Christ-like love of the church, the unrelenting, steadfast, long-suffering love of Christ overflowing in and through the church that will enable them to not grow weary in the good of discipline. It is the love of Christ for one another that will safeguard them from becoming discouraged or disheartened with one another and will keep them from abandoning or giving up on doing good to people who don't deserve it. That's what he means by don't grow weary. Don't abandon. Don't grow so tired of doing it that you stop. Don't abandon doing good to people who don't deserve it. That is what Christ's love is towards us. And that is what he desires for his church towards one another. An unrelenting, unwearying desire to do good to one another, even in the good of discipline. I'm learning this. I am learning this. God has us in a place of parenting young children in this season, and I am so learning this. It can be tiresome. It it can happen at all hours of the day or night. It can happen in the middle of church services, right? Everybody knows it can happen in the middle of the day or night. It doesn't matter how you feel. You could have a fever of 103 and discipline comes knocking. Your child needs to be disciplined. Something is happening. You could be sick. You could be tired with the day. It takes energy and time and sacrifice to willingly enter into discipline. And not only that, But often as you enter into the discipline, God is using that not just for the good of our children, right, in parenting and just bringing discipline to our children, but often when I walk away from discipline, I'm aware of how I need to grow. I I all of a sudden am like the weight of like, man, I have got to be more patient. Man, I have got to express the love of Christ more. Man, I was was too too harsh there. Lord, I need to grow in gentleness. So, So you have... Discipline is hard, not just because you have to give it, but because you're growing in it at the same time. And so the temptation is is to grow weary in it. The temptation is to be in the room and you hear your kids say something over there that you know you should correct, but to say, it's just, is it worth it? I just want to keep watching TV. Well, that carries over, saints. That doesn't stay just at, at, at parenting, does it? that carries over into our lives with one another. Do I really want to talk to that brother about that? We have, a good, we have such a good thing going. But man, I, I, I keep seeing him look at ladies who, as they pass by when we're talking to one another. But I got to. If we grow weary in doing good, We know that this is true in our homes. If we stopped discipling or disciplining our children, it would be horrific, wouldn't it? If police in the world just said, I'm done, 
and, and discipline of the world was removed, it would be horrific. The same is true inside the church. If we stop, if we go weary in doing the good of discipline, it, it will be dramatically difficult for us. Hard. Unaddressed sin that's left to linger isn't just going to disappear on its own. Imagine, imagine this. It's like a weed in a beautiful yard. On my downtime, one of the things I love to do, just get outside in the sun and just cut the grass and pluck weeds. And I'm still not doing a good job, but I'm trying to do a better job. And, um, but you, you imagine a beautiful yard and it has one little weed in it. And, it's, and if it's left to grow unhindered, it plants deeper roots, it grows, and it spreads. And over time, the yard is full of weeds, isn't it? Same is true for our hearts. Same is true for our hearts. In 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses the church at Corinth in this very thing, that they are unwilling or have become unwilling to address serious, willful sin in the church and are instead tolerating it. They're tolerating stuff happening in the church, accepting it and learning to live with it, living with the weed in the yard. And Paul tells them in chapter 5 that it's actually revealing a pride and arrogance within the church, within their hearts. It's revealing a pride and arrogance within the church to think that they can live outside of God's instruction to correct sin and that everything will still be okay. Paul says, no, it's going to spread and cause greater harm. Church, if we grow weary in doing the good of church discipline, if we stop, it says to the watching world that sin is okay. If we stop, if we grow weary in church discipline, it preaches cheap grace. Come as you are and stay as you are. When the reality is Jesus says, come as you are and be transformed. It displays a doubt of the sufficiency of Scripture. That we can live outside of what God commands. So if we, if we live that way, we're functionally saying, I don't really got to obey this. It's not really God's word. Or it's not sufficient for telling me how to live. If we grow weary in doing the good of church discipline, it tarnishes the beauty of the church's gospel witness in being Christ-set-apart people because we stay looking just like the sin-broken world around us. The world doesn't want... <laughs> Here's the thing. You hear people talk. I, I've, I've talked to people. People are skeptics of pastors. I'm sure even some of you have come with that. Skeptics. Because, because what, we're what we're starting to see in evangelicalism is the church trying to look more and more like the world. Just to, be, to draw in the world, we're trying to look like the world. And what the world says is like, they're just like me. They're just like, why would I go for, for that? They proclaim transformation, but they don't look any different. We need one another in the church community to help us look different. The Spirit is working and the Lord gives, gives grace through His people as He works within them to join together and, and together the Lord is transforming us. 
to look different in this wicked world, to shine brightly, to shine brightly as lights, right? The city on a hill. We have to look different. And if we just continue to allow sin, oh man, the world says, you look just like us. There's, how is your gospel message powerful when you look just like me? Saints, in our church membership covenant, so next Sunday, right, those, those precious saints will be welcomed as members of the church. This is one of the commitments that's made. It'll be up on the screen. It says this, I commit to pursuing holiness in my personal life for the sake of Jesus' reputation and for the purity of the church as well as pursuing holiness in the life of the church community through the exercise of church discipline. It's something we want to commit to. Sin is so dangerous and can be devastating to the Christian and to the church as a whole if left unaddressed. And sin is so serious that it must be responded to seriously. And that leads us to our second point. Second point that Paul makes in verse 14, the beginning of verse 14, 14a, says the serious accountability of church discipline. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Yikes. The word of this letter, we know, is inspired by the word, it is the word of God because it's inspired by God and it's given to the church both this day and today for our good and our instruction. The word is the standard by which we are to live our lives and it is to be the standard by which Christians evaluate everything through, the lenses we see the world through. And so the word of God is the authority in the Christian's life by which we are to obey. In our church membership covenant, we have this commitment that ties to this as well. It says this, I submit myself to the authority and instruction of God's word that is to inform my belief and way of living with what accords with Christ. I will humbly bow my life to the leadership of the Lord through faithful obedience to his word as the final authority on all matters of life and faith. So, so the picture here that Paul is painting is one of someone who has committed to something like that and stops living that out. He's describing someone who is professing to be a believer and is in the church body, yet there is a serious and urgent area of their life that is not being lived in obedience to the word of God. And the church has labored in something of an informal, corrective discipline to try to help them see their sin and call them to turn from it and live under the authority of the Word of God. But yet they are not responding in humble repentance and obedience. That's what's happening here. And if they continue to disregard the Word of God, here's what the church is to do. Take note of them. Not ignore what's going on, but call them to attention. 
Say, we see what's happening. We know what's going on. Take note of them. We are to call them to attention. Sin is, is serious enough that life can't keep going on like everything's okay. That's what Paul's getting at. Sin is so serious, life cannot keep going on like everything is okay. After patient, repeated attempts to call someone to turn away from sin, yet they repeatedly, if they repeatedly turn away from those attempts, there is a point in which Paul says life has to change. You call them to attention, and then he says, have nothing to do with them. What he means there is we don't keep mingling like life is all good. We don't keep gathering and eating together and watching the Spurs game together while we laugh and joke and snack on chips while my brother or sister sitting next to me, I know later on is, going, is just giving themselves willfully into something that's horrifically dangerous for them. I can't just sit there and eat chips and cheer on a team while they are being ensnared in sin. Now, there, we know there is no perfect, there's not an expectation for perfection here. But we're talking about sin that is, that is entrapping them and they are not seeing that it is wrong. And so they're not turning away from it or they're not fighting against it. That's what we're talking about here. Serious, dangerous sin. I know the temptation is to hear that line and probably first in your heart to say, man, that's harsh. I've actually heard someone say that before. That, that, that's harsh. It's like, well, that's God's word. So are we gonna, well, how are we going to respond to that? It's not in such a way that's rude or uncaring. I think that's often what ends up happening, right? The bazookas get brought out, the truth bazookas. and poof. It's not rude, it's not uncaring, but, but, but the reality of the moment is that if I really do care about you, so much that I cannot act like everything is okay. Now, when, when, we, when we reach a point when someone is not responding in repentance to serious sin, our relationship goes from recreation to rescue mission. Think of it in that way. We go from recreation to rescue mission. I can't just keep gathering and laughing and feasting together when I know you are living with one foot in the danger zone of sin. Think of it like that. It's like living with one foot in the minefield, and at any moment, it can just blow up. Any moment, having a brother or a sister just well, one foot in the minefield, and at any moment, it can just blow up. And if, if, if I saw you living with one foot in a minefield, if I truly love you and care about your good, there is absolutely no way I can make small talk and crack jokes with you. There is an urgency. I, I would be consumed with a loving passion to enter into your world and see you rescued from the devastation of waywardness. And I hope you would be filled with the same for me and for Pastor Rob. 
that if you saw me with one foot in the minefield, one foot just blows everything up, that you would be consumed with a loving passion to pursue me. Church membership isn't just for those outside of pastoral ministry. the, The pastors sign that covenant too. It's for each and every Christian in this room and in this church. Lily, a, a while back, we went to a pumpkin patch, and, and it was like right in the middle of downtown. It was probably not a good place for a pumpkin patch. And it, there's like a busy street right next to it, and there's cars zooming by. And she was very little, and we're there. We have grandparents. We're walking. We're enjoying. And all of a sudden, where's Lily? And we turn, and she's just running as fast as she can right to the busy street. And there's cars just going, and she's just running, running. And Danielle and I, you, what do you do? Do you just say like, oh, if I yell, people are going to be offended. If I, if I get passionate here. No, it, in that moment, everything in your hands drops. Who cares about the pumpkin, right? Who cares about that? Get it out of here. I care about you. And so at that moment, I remember Danielle was in front of me. There's, stop, Lily, Stop. Stop, and we're running after her to grab her, to rescue her. We, we, you can't sit idly by when someone you love is heading towards destruction and they don't even know it, right? Amen. Precious saints, the same is true in the life of the church. Sin is serious, and so it must be responded to seriously. But there is an aim to our response. It's the third point. Third point, the aim of church discipline. It's what we see at the the very last part of verse 14, 14b. The aim of church discipline. In the end, the hope is that a wayward brother or sister would move from feeling numb to the reality of their sin to feeling the pain and distress caused by a fresh awareness of their sin so that they turn from the path of foolishness and death and return to the path of life. That's the aim. That's the hope. That's what Paul is expressing when he says that they may be ashamed. Josh mentioned it in our call, our call of confession and grace a moment ago, that there would be a godly grief, a grief. What is a grief? It's a heaviness of heart that weighs upon me. I feel sorrow and sad for something. And it's a grief for our sin that leads us to repentance. That's what Paul is saying here. This this shame. It's it's not that they would be condemned and so cower away. That's often how church discipline tries to work itself out, isn't it? Right. We're just going to hammer them so hard and make them feel so bad that they are condemned and are gone. Right? No, the, the, the good and godly temporary shame that leads someone to knowing the unrelenting goodness and pursuit and forgiveness of God made possible through Christ in light of our sin. 
Now, there is a time, there is a guarding that has to happen, especially as shepherds, especially as under-shepherds, pastors, under-shepherds, under the great shepherd of Christ Jesus. There is a rod and staff. There is a guarding of the sheep. So you better, you better know, church, if someone comes into our gathering of the little flock, we are receiving them, we want to love them, but there is an awareness that do we need to be on guard with this person? Are they going to harm the sheep? Are they trying to abuse the sheep? Take advantage of the sheep. And there's a greater sense of guarding and correction there. Shepherds tend to sheep and drive off wolves. So just know that even in this, there is always an awareness as under shepherds tend to the sheep, gentle with sheep, gentle with sheep, driving off wolves. Paul is, is talking about a brother, though, so let's keep going here. His desire is that, there would, that they would be awakened, awakened to an awareness within them that results in the tears of repentance and gladness running down their face when they realize just how wrong they have been before such a wonderfully good and patient and merciful God. I would say it's a spirit-induced, temporary shame. Right? The enemy would want to condemn and leave you there, right? But I think the Spirit says there's a, there's a temporary grief. There's a temporary shame that says that was wrong. That was wrong. I should not have done that. That is good. If it lingers and lingers and lingers, I think we're probably in need then of turning our eyes to the finished work of Christ. So temporary shame, I think, is a, is a, is a Spirit-induced shame that, that leads us leads us to repentance and restoration and humble gratefulness and ultimately worship. That's what it does. Ultimately worship. So the aim of church discipline, and hear this, this is our heart. This is what we pray for. The aim of church discipline is always restoration. Always restoration. That's the aim of church discipline restoration. And so the church then is to be resolved to enter into the beautiful yet sometimes messy ministry of restoration, which is church discipline. It's not angry restoration. It's loving restoration. That's the last, that's, that's what Paul closes with here in verse 15. The heart of church discipline. The heart of church discipline. If the aim of church discipline is always restoration, the heart of church discipline is loving restoration. Loving restoration. He says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Enemies are fought against, right? We fight against enemies. Enemies are fought against. Enemies are hostile to one another. Enemies hate one another. Enemies are looking to take the other one down. Enemies rejoice at one another's failures. Enemies start smear campaigns about one another all over social media. Isn't that what you see even now? You have, we have all the voting stuff about to happen, the politics. Oh, it's one of the worst seasons, right? Everywhere you turn, there's this a smear campaign. Hate leads us down that road. Smear campaigns, even within the church. Oh, man, 
even within the church, if we're not on guard. But Paul says, don't regard him as an enemy. Regard him as a brother. Warn him as a brother. Treat them like the family they are, like a brother or a sister. By God's grace, you're going to sit across from them one day. You're going to sit across from them at the family feast of Christ, and so let your heart towards them be fitting for what the family of Christ is supposed to feel for one another, right? Let your heart be towards them what is fitting for a member, a brother, or a sister in the family of Christ who you will sit across one day and feast at the family meal of Christ. So we aren't opposing them as an enemy. Rather, we're longing for them as a brother or a sister. We long for their good. We are aching for them to stop playing in the swamp of sin and to come and find this beautiful field of life in Christ. And though we are, we are tempted often to sit idly by, if for a brother or a sister, for a family member, we are overcome with this passionate pursuit to, to lay down our lives for them and willingly enter into their trouble. And I, I would say that is actually a very Christ centered thing. That's a very Christ-like approach to church discipline. So much of what we see in this false gospel stuff of our day is that if, if you truly love someone, you won't interfere with how they want to live, even if it's the opposite or rebelling against what God commands. But a Christ-centered view of church discipline compares, it takes the saving work of Jesus, the gospel, and it holds up this circumstance of church discipline with someone, this person's area of sin in their life, and it's, it holds them up together and it says, we want this, the church discipline and the pursuit of one another away from sin to look like what Christ has done when he left heaven and came to earth. We want the gospel to be reflected in the way we pursue one another here and now. We want there to be a Christ-centeredness in our church discipline. The same way Christ left what was comfortable in heaven, his glorious throne, and sacrificially laid down his life to courageously and graciously and mercifully pursue the rebel sheep. Pursue the rebel sheep of which each and every one of us once were from being taken as enemies to being reconciled to the Father in peace and restored to Him and made sons and daughters as the Spirit of God, church, works within us to cause us to grow in the love of Christ, to love what He loves, as the Spirit is working that within us to, to cause our hearts to begin to reflect His heart, our lives begin to reflect His life, our pursuit of peace among one another and restoration and reconciliation for one another begins to reflect our precious Savior's pursuit of peace and restoration and reconciliation for us. Amen? Amen. 
May that be so, precious saints. That's what it is to be Christ-centered. It's that the finished work of Christ permeates every part of life, including church discipline, including the way we live with one another, including in our marriages and in our parenting. The finished work of Christ plants roots down deep within us. And as we are freshly aware of what we ourselves deserve apart from the grace of God, Christ enables us to graciously, humbly, patiently, and lovingly pursue restoration for one another and to not give up. Christ doesn't give up on us. We just sang about this this vast love. No place you can hide from it. No place you can go to get away from it. No place you can wander away from keeps coming. And may that love be visible in this church. Amen. That's why Paul could write this at the end of his first letter to the church at Thessalonica. He said, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, Be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Amen? Let's pray.